so I'm a psychologist. I, I, I have an undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in psychology. If you've made it this far in this series, you probably need to see a shrink. Most people think of psychology as, you know, somebody you go to if you're ill. But I am a social or a political psychologist. And I think I've found one that we can all go to. The whole lot of us that lived through the last 10 years. I did my PhD in Belfast. Um, and I was interested in the impact of political violence. And nobody really has trouble with seeing that that is a collective trauma that has affected the entirety of Northern Ireland. Professor Orla Muldoon has just received a lot of money from the EU to study the idea that traumatic events can change an entire national character. Not really that controversial an idea when you think about the impact of the Troubles in the North. People find it really easy to understand that impact when they're not looking at themselves, when they're not looking at their own group. So when they feel that, well, that's the North, you know, of of course that would be the case. But people find it much more difficult to see how it might have impacted us. So let's take a long, hard look in the mirror then see what the last 10 years reflects back. This is the TLDL episode of this series. Too long, didn't listen. 10 episodes condensed into one to psychologically profile what 10 years of tumult did to the national patient. Buckle up. That was such a scary time. You never knew from budget to budget just how bad things were going to be. It's grown-ups and grown-up rules, and if you lose money in that, tough luck, walk on. They can find money to bail out banks, so why can't they find money to build homes for people? If I'm radicalised, I'm radicalised because of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour. It was actually like as if somebody had died. That was the only way now you could describe it. It was horrible. And in this programme, an answer to the question that has plagued us throughout. Can we change that tune? We've been playing the blues because, superficially, it seems like a good fit to describe what happened to us ten years ago. But I promised that we would only continue to do that if we couldn't find something a bit more fitting. So let's not bury the unpleasant memories just yet. Let's sift through them one more time to see what we should have learned. To get a fix on what happened so we can better fix what might be just about to happen. And if there is a more appropriate national theme tune, well then, we'll play the hell out of it before this programme is over. In the beginning, there was the bank guarantee. A decade of bad decisions fueled it, a decade of hard choices flowed out of it. The recession it in part caused took Pat Maloney's job and nearly his and his wife Kath Queeley's house. You could see the writing on the wall and I was called in one morning and put on short time. And with a, 
a son going to school and bills to pay and the mortgage, uh, having to go over to the local social welfare office and sign on was the most humiliating thing I've ever had to do. We almost lost the house. I didn't tell Pat for the first eight or nine months what was going on with our mortgage. I couldn't see the point in the two of us being that terrified. But the bank guarantee also ensured that in September 2008, as chaos was looking for its next home, its eye only rested briefly on Ireland. After a lifetime of saving for her retirement, Mary Flynn was saved by the guarantee. Oh, yes, I think. Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I was on medication because I was so, so scared, so, so scared and didn't know where to turn, you know. Absolutely. And I wasn't the only one. I remember meeting a neighbour of mine uh, down in, um, I think it was down in Supervalue at the time, and she was in the same boat as me. And her husband was a, a sole trader and she was really, really stressed out as well, you know, about it. And he uh, he died recently anyway, the poor man. But she was like me. She was so, so scared of what she was going to do. We really didn't know what to do, to tell you the honest truth. We really didn't know what to do. So it was a scary time. Without the guarantee, Mary would most probably have lost everything. Because of the guarantee, Pat and Kath almost lost everything. But we've only written one narrative around it, when it was in fact two things. The thing that saved us and the thing that nearly broke us. One of the things that you see is that actually there were quite a lot of people who welcomed the bailout. So what you see even in those early episodes is that there is a a sort of a distinction between those who have money in the bank and those who owe money to the bank. And that later becomes, I think, as we now look at it, a, a distinction that is becomes a little bit binary and reductionist distinction between haves and have nots. One of the things that Professor Muldoon and her colleagues' research points towards is that where events are traumatising, we tend not to hold on to competing facts. We distill and reduce what happened to wholly good or bad, entirely black or white options. People do do things, for instance, like make cognitive shortcuts, like that, oh, it was all right for you because you had money in the bank and your money was saved. Oh, it wasn't all right for you because you ended up in negative equity. Of course, many of us had money in the bank and ended up in negative equity. Do you know, you could be in both camps. But when something big like this happens, what you tend to find is this kind of binary thinking begins to happen. Um, And that binary thinking tends to be associated with stress, that people, when people are stressed, um, and even more so when people are depressed, that there tends to be a kind of a cognitive narrowing where people do this black and white thinking. And the shades of grey that we maybe had previously aren't there so much um, because we're so caught up in our own distress that we find it difficult to be outside of uh, or take the perspective of another. So to be outside of our own concerns. Um, and I think that process combined with what was going on externally and the discourse of the have and the have not actually facilitated a lot of this polarised thinking. People who are stressed are less likely to see things from any perspective other than their own. Stress and worry painted us into political corners. And there were so many of us stressed or traumatised by different things after the crash. Let's just add them up. By this time, ten years ago, 
300,000 had lost that thing that defines most of us, their job. Cahill MacDonald lived two miserable and stressful years of shuttling backwards and forwards to London in search of work. It soon became apparent that I was sitting on a Ryanair flight every second week going back to London with 200 odd people in the exact same boat as me. You know, everyone was between the ages of 25 and 40 as far as I could see. And, you know, you you get talking to people on flights and they're all generally third level uh, qualified people, professionals who were in the same boat. A lot of a lot of construction guys as well from trade backgrounds. But uh, the over the overriding uh, commonality between it all was their age groups. They were all 25 to 40. And it just that brain drain, which you hear about, became a reality. That's what was happening. Over a quarter of a million people left in search of work. True, many, if not most, have since returned. But at the time, for parents like Eileen Noonan, left behind when her eldest son Billy went to New Zealand, it was a grieving process not unlike death. His bedroom was downstairs and all his stuff was still in it, but he wasn't there. And it was of a Saturday, so normally Billy would be getting ready to go out. But the house was so quiet. And even the dog, um, Scooter, he, he, he kind of just looked at us and he went, yeah, he went into on top of Billy's bed as if he was waiting for him to come. But it was the quietness and the, it was actually like as if somebody had died. That was the only way now you could describe it. It was horrible. I really was. At a very conservative minimum, 60,000 people were evicted or had their homes repossessed. And there are as many as a further 200,000 currently in the first stages of eviction as their mortgages are in serious distress. Dorothy Seagrave was being treated for cancer when Nama told her she would have to leave her rented home. When we were notified that Nama was selling the property and they wanted uh, me to open the house up so that people could come in and look around. And I said, there's no way I'm doing that because my immune system is really low with all of the chemicals and stuff. And you're told not to mix Um so I wouldn't allow anybody in the house. So we had people coming up to the window and gawking in. And there's me. I had no hair at the time. I had um, a hat on my head and it was so invasive. So in the end, myself and the kids just got in the car and went out for a drive for an hour. So we didn't have to witness it. It was really upsetting for all of us. Over 100,000 public service pensions were hit early and hard. Recently retired school principal Anne McMahon saw her household income drop by €300 Euros a month. She and her husband weathered it, but never knowing what was coming next was very stressful. That was such a scary time that you, and there had been so many, I suppose, misleading statements made about, no, the IMF is not coming. Well, we don't know if the IMF is coming. Yes, they are coming. And each year, you never knew from budget to budget just how bad things were going to be. In 2011, just over a million people were receiving welfare payments. People like lone parent Sarah Gill, who's never forgotten the stress of trying to put food on the table during the austerity years as benefits went down, but costs only ever seemed to go up. That January was just horrendous. Like I literally hadn't got money for milk some weeks, so I wasn't letting that happen to me again. 
it's horrible. It's horrible because you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, who can I ring for a lend of 10 euros? But I don't want to actually ring anybody like as in family or, you know, can I, because if I get a loan of 10 euros, how do I pay back that back of the social welfare that I get next time? I'm constantly having a notepad beside me, writing down the bills, walking every way, just and going, right. As the years have gone on, I find and now the cost of living's gone so much higher. And I know they say it isn't, it is, I don't, I, you know, especially shop, food shopping and stuff. So now I find myself every two, fortnight when I get my wages, I write down how much my income is and then I have to write down what I'm paying out so I know how much I have left over. And there's some weeks I sit there and I'm like, oh my God, I have 40 euros to do me for two weeks. One million welfare recipients, 100,000 reduced pensions, 60,000 evicted, 200,000 living in mortgage distress, 270,000 who emigrated, 300,000 made redundant. Even allowing for a bit of overlap, people made redundant, getting dole and choosing to emigrate, that's still an enormous number of people living with huge stress that causes physiological changes in the body. Stress can deliver things like the fight or flight response. Um, And certainly in work that we've done, we've shown that people who were unemployed during that period did show all sorts of stress responses in terms of biological responses. Uh, The distinction between stress and trauma is probably of scale and magnitude. So trauma is something um, that most psychologists would say shatters your view of the world. So it changes profoundly how you see things. The most profound of those changes in Professor Muldoon's analysis is how we see the world. We never had a turn of phrase in Ireland like the American dream, but we did subscribe to a similar work hard, get ahead ethos. The crash and austerity shattered that. The banking crisis did change profoundly how people saw things. So my mother's generation seeing things as um, if you work hard, you will succeed. Whereas what happened to the next generation, and I think probably millennials the most, is that a, a lot of evidence that all their hard work could actually land them in negative equity. Um, that they could actually, the the assumptions that they were using for how they were building up a good life and and resources that they could use to provide security for themselves and their family, that they couldn't be assured of that anymore. Um, So I think that's huge to lose your home, to lose your job, to lose all sense of purpose for many people. And that is very traumatic. In the ordinary course of events, the baseline number for people at any one time living with some degree of post-traumatic stress disorder is 10%. So what happens then when you put people through emigration, redundancy, living long term on the breadline, threaten them with losing their homes? In the group that might have lost their home, it could be as high as 30%. Um, But there will also be a significant proportion of those people who, as well as having distress, will have some growth from the experience um, so that they will actually develop an altered view of the world. Sometimes that is more positive than the view of the world that they had previously. In any group of 10 friends, it's likely that two or three could be, well, depending on their socioeconomic class, that it's likely that two or three or maybe even four could be at some level traumatised, do you think? 
they mightn't still have symptoms, but for sure, I would say uh, th- those kinds of numbers will have been very profoundly affected by what happened. It was a shock to the entire population. So I think that even though they may not, they may no longer have symptoms, they may have lost a couple of years to worry, ill health, potentially depression, potentially post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, I, I just don't see how it could be any other way. The social contract was broken. That implicit deal, you work, we'll catch you if you fall, was gone. Daily life became like a high wire act without a net. So also, not surprisingly, the other measured way that we were changed was a loss of trust, not just in banks, governments, institutions of the state and so on, but much more sadly, we lost trust in each other. People who have post-traumatic stress disorder tend not to be able to trust others because most people, so one effect that we know from from the literature is that um, stressful events that are human-made rather than natural disasters, for example, that they're far more likely to deliver post-traumatic stress. If somehow you think that this thing could have been prevented by somebody's action or inaction, um, well, then you're more likely to have post-traumatic stress. So it seems, well, post-traumatic stress seems to be profoundly related to your ability to believe in other people and trust other people. Culture wars, them and us. With a Sora Guinness, lack of trust in official news sources, embracing of conspiracy. Much of this stems from how we handled and mishandled the cycle of Boom Bust Broke. We've learned quite a few startling things about the consequences of the crash and austerity measures during the course of this series. Like it reduced... By two years, the increase that we should have had in our life expectancy over the last decade. What we're seeing since 2010 is a slowing in the increase in life expectancy, or indeed a halving in the increase of life expectancy in Ireland. Like it made the sex lives of tens of thousands of women on medical cards miserable and painful, or probably non-existent, because of one of the very first cuts introduced. We made a decision to bail out the banks and one of the consequences of that was they removed access to women for a service that they had. Or that dentists are perversely incentivised to pull teeth rather than save them thanks to another as yet unreversed medical card cutback. The whole issue was that he had nine other cavities that you can't see. His teeth were blazing his life. We saw that cutbacks were more likely to be imposed on those who couldn't oppose them. Carers can't make their voice heard. Most carers are gagged because they can't shout, they can't go out and protest. We got some sense of the damage done, the joy removed from people's lives and the dread that the thought of austerity version 2.0 or version COVID causes. I think about it and I try and put it on my mind because I just think I can't, I can't even think about it because I just, I don't want to even think about that now. I'll, I'll deal with that when it comes and that's going to be a hard, hard year.
But we met people for whom emigration had been almost entirely positive. Yeah, it's high up there. I'd give it eight, nine out of ten. They had a quality life, work, a lot more positive videos, a lot more growth for people here. And we met immigrants who see something in Ireland that we might have lost sight of. After a good few years, I'm actually start feeling as a citizen. Part of me was actually joined with, with Ireland. We learned how to protest the system cleverly, using human rights law to give us what we deserved but were being denied. We were fed up and it was just like we needed to do something. We started to empower the residents as well to say that, you know, this is not acceptable. And many were fortunate enough to get back to where they would have been, almost as if the crash hadn't happened. Things have gone well for me over the last 10 years and I feel like I'm back where I would have been. So there's two sides to our 10-year tale that we have to consider to get a proper picture. Stories that often contradict each other, but have to be held in our heads simultaneously. Some were never traumatised, some were, and got over it, but were changed. Some will never get over it. Which brings us back to the music. Orla Muldoon feels that the blues is an interesting choice because it is an expression of social solidarity. Blues music can be seen as a venture that allowed African-Americans to band together and offer each other solidarity. So it can be something that reveals the problem that people are facing. Um, And it is also something that allows people to find others who have shared the same experience, band together and grow and agitate for change. have to be honest here, if there is a fight that I just don't have the guts for, it's suggesting a single song that a nation as diverse and as picky and as cranky as all of us will embrace. Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class. Besides which, I have spent a lot of the last three months thinking about this and I think that the blues is actually a good fit. Ain't got no faith. I'm not for one minute trying to equate our lost decade to 400 years of slavery that's the wellspring of the blues, but the sentiment behind it fits for more than one reason at the same time. Ain't got no hands. thing about trauma is you don't just get over it. It lives with you and it changes you. We are changed because of the traumas that were inflicted on us, even more so because they were not of our making. They were unjust as well as harsh. So the blues fits better than anything else because it's sung by heartbroken people, people who have suffered and lost. Ain't got no love.
wait for the pivot. The moment that Nina Simone says, yes, I have been through all this, but look what I've got. What have I got? See, the blues are sung by gritty, edgy, fascinating, heartbroken people who, despite that heartache, create something amazing from their trauma. They stand up there on the world stage and they keep on keeping on. Nina Simone asks us to keep two ideas of ourselves in our heads at the same time as well. We've been through a lot. It isn't over yet. There will be more unfairness, more injustices. But look at what we have got. We are us, in all of our brilliant, bulgy, not going to take that lying down, solidarity and complexity. The ten years of Boom Bust broke unfairly burdened us. Too much was asked of too many, and we haven't repaired all of it yet. But we are formidable. This is a country of enormous wealth, and we are motivated, like no other point in our history, to change things. So, yes, the blues fits. But our tempo, our drumbeat, our version of the blues... Broke was produced and presented by me, Philip Boucher Hayes. My very sincere thanks to my colleague Tom Donnelly, who allowed me to steal his better ideas and steered me diplomatically away from my worst ones throughout the course of this series. If you want to hear more programmes like this from RTE in podcast form, presented by me and others, please rate and review where you can. It helps us to make the case for their popularity. Thanks for listening and stay safe. During the recent broadcast of the series Boom Bust Broke, it was stated that Nama proceeded with the sale of a property that was being rented by a seriously ill woman and that she was subsequently evicted. We are happy to clarify that Nama was in no way involved in the eviction of the woman from the property and that this was entirely at the discretion of the new owner of the property. We'd also like to clarify that this property was not in the Nama portfolio.